So, once again, welcome, and let's begin our first presentation, which is seeking to answer the question, is the Hamas horror that unfolded recently something that is biblically significant? It's so significant for so many people, but is it biblically significant? Well, I think it's good if we share a kind of Bible timeline of prophecy, one that should be familiar to us in our understanding of the things that will develop. We're not presenting anything novel tonight. It's the same prophetic model that has been around since the publication of uh, a book known amongst our churches as the figure of prophecy. And it set out what would be termed more widely the premillennialist position. So, same outline as figure of prophecy. And shortly in the second talk, David is going to be telling us about the rapture event shown by the, the purple upward arrow when Christ will come and take all believers to be with himself. And after that event, there's a seven-year period and God will begin to deal with his ancient people Israel again. So that's what the two talks tonight are about. So we are here, we're saying, very close, we believe, to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And things that are happening in the world today are among the reasons why we believe we are living very close to the time of the Lord's return. We are remembering what happened on October the 7th, the horror terror attack when Israel was infiltrated by terrorists from the Gaza Strip. And that happened on October the 7th, and on that day about 1,400 people were killed and 230 Israelis were taken hostage. It wasn't the first time that Israel had had to invade the Gaza Strip. They did that in 2008 and 2014 also. Hamas have ruled the Gaza Strip since 2007. And continually missiles are fired into Israel, and Israel, of course, retaliate. So that's the event that happened fairly recently. I think there are two things of particular biblical significance that we can talk about. Um, first of all, is the fact that this little piece of real estate that we're talking about, the Gaza Strip, is a piece of ground that the Bible speaks about very specifically as undergoing violence in the time of the end. And, of course, we're seeing that happening before our eyes today. The second thing that Bible students pick up on is the fact that surrounding Israel, there are numerous countries, many of them sharing a border with Israel, and they are the very countries that the Bible pinpointed two and a half thousand years ago that would be in hostility against Israel. So we'll come to look at those nations today and find the lineup with what we find in Scripture. Of course, events have gone on since October the 7th, and last month, month of January 2024, it was found that the death toll would be about 20,000, and it's more than that, and the recent horror events in the Nasser Hospital and so on. So a very major uh, death toll taking place in this little piece of real estate. And of course, it's widened out beyond just Gaza itself, hasn't it, of course? Because 
the uh, Hamas attack took place, and then there's been some involvement with Hezbollah, and also the Houthi rebels are coming out in sympathy. And Iran is behind those three groups, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis. And Iran's hatred against Israel is implacable, this anti-Semitism that has led to these attacks. So let's focus now on the Gaza Strip. We said that this little piece of real estate is something, somewhere, that the Bible spoke about as undergoing violence at the time of the end. So here's one of the major Bible prophets, Ezekiel. And in chapter 25 of Ezekiel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Philistines have acted in vengeance and have taken vengeance with malice in their souls to destroy the everlasting hostility, therefore this is what the Lord God says. Behold, I am going to reach out with my hand against the Philistines and eliminate the Cherethites and I will destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them, etc. Notice the personal involvement of the Lord. It's his hand that would be against the area of the Philistines. It's perhaps worth mentioning a couple of Bible facts about the Philistines. They're quite a, an enigmatic group in some ways to, to pinpoint exactly. I think there are three Bible facts that we find about them. Number one, they were around in the time of Abraham in the land of Canaan and designated as such, the Philistines. But then leading up to the time of Moses, we find there were seafaring settlers who settled on the southwest coastland of Israel. And they came from Crete. The Bible tells us this in Genesis 10. Um, those who were known as the Philistines came from the island of Crete. And they were settlers on this piece of coastland. In fact, they were famous or infamous in the Med. And the Egyptians had a name for them, called them the Palestine, which maybe gave rise to the Philistine name. And then thirdly, we know that from the time of Joshua through to David, various people groups were identified with this same area that we're looking at, known to us today as the Gaza Strip. Names like the Alvim, the Geshurites, the Cherethites, and the Pelethites. You may remember from readings even in the days of David and Solomon, the Cherethites and the Pelethites were David's kind of bodyguard, and Benaiah was to head over them. So we've got these things about the Philistines. Uh, there were people there, but settlers came in, and the term Philistine is used for all these people groups. But the area is always the same. It's always this southwest coastland of Israel. So Gaza is now particularly mentioned in the Bible. We talk about the Gaza Strip, and Gaza is famous in the Bible. We know, of course, that Samson, in the book of Judges, was trapped there for a few hours at least. So this is Zephaniah, one of the minor prophets now in Zephaniah 2, and he says, Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon will become a desolation. The inhabitants of Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the sea coast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will eliminate you so that there will be no inhabitant. So the sea coast will become grazing places, with pastures for shepherds and folds for flocks, and the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah, and so on. Again, it's very definitely uh, the sea coast area, southwest Israel, and Gaza, very particular. So we've thought about the who 
of the Philistines, we thought about the Ler, the southwestern coastland, and it's good to also think about the Plain. And for this we'll turn to Joel, chapter 3, another of the minor prophets. And again, the Gaza Strip gets a mention. What we're doing as we look at these Bible portions is the standard method of um, expositing scripture. We look for what it meant, and then that controls what it means in our understanding today. So what we're doing is we're looking at the names that are in the Bible, like Philistines, Cherethites, etc., and we're identifying where in geographical terms they existed, and what was their territory. We're keeping the territory constant, but we're updating the labels to modern place names, and we'll do that again in a few moments. So we're looking at the Gaza Strip, a.k.a. the Philistine territory of old in the Bible. And God says, for behold, in those days and at that time, now whenever you read words like that, in the minor prophets or even the major prophets, that's a signature statement pointing us to the future. The prophecies had a contemporary meaning, but they also had a meaning far into the future. And when it looks ahead to in those days, and at that time it's looking forward to something that's yet to happen. So this is still future from the time of writing. And we're suggesting we could be seeing some of the events that are leading up and paving the way for the fulfillment ultimately of these things. So God says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. You know, that's very contemporary. I don't think that happened in the past, but the Balfour Declaration in 1917 parceled out a bit of land for Israel because of assistance in the war. But the British government never kept its word, and Israel only got 13% of the land that was promised to them. So the land was divided. It was partitioned. And of course, hopes for a two-state solution have not yet materialized. They're still problematic. So Israel only got a little bit of land. They divided up the land. They've also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a prostitute, and sold a girl for wine so that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, the Lord says, Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me with retribution? But if you are showing me retribution, swiftly and speedily, I will return your retribution on your head. God's judgment again on this part of the world. And notice Tyre is mentioned along with Philistia. So we've got Lebanon as well as the Gaza Strip. If we use the modern names that equate with the terms that are used in the Bible. So we're looking at the time of the end. In those days, and Prophet Isaiah, another of the major prophets, after speaking about the coming judgment against the Antichrist, who is also known in Isaiah as the Assyrian, have you noticed that? Even in the Christmas text we use in Isaiah chapter 9, about the child born, the son given, the wonderful counselor, that's our Messiah, our Lord Jesus, who's coming again. But in the next chapter, there's this figure, the Assyrian. It's the same in Micah chapter 5. Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you will come, one whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. That's our Lord Jesus, that's the Messiah. But then it says in verse 5, this man will be our peace when the Assyrian comes into the land. So that's future. 
It's Messiah and the Antichrist, known as the Assyrian to these Bible prophets of old. So then Isaiah chapters 13 to 23 give a list of nations who will be judged by the Lord in the future for their hatred towards God's people Israel. So included among those judgments, Isaiah in chapter 14 also includes mention of judgment against the southwestern seacoast of Israel. He says this, <coughs> Wail you gate, cry you city, Beltaly Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes from the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. So there's the fourth prophetic statement from the Old Testament that feature this specific piece of real estate that's very much in the forefront of the news today. And it's the Lord's action, and it's the time of the end that is being spoken about. Well, just as we're on this, you'll be aware, I trust, that the fellowship is supporting a group of believers in Sanaa, the uh, capital of Yemen. And uh, they're, of course, in the territory where some of the UK's missiles are being headed in their attempt to root out the Houthis, who are sponsored by Iran. Of course, the UK and US governments are trying to prevent shipping being affected, going through the Red Sea and up the Suez Canal. Um, but that story can be spun by the other side. So we've got those attacks from the West, but we've also got Iran, the one sponsoring Hamas and sponsoring the Houthis. Iran has been sending missiles into Syria and into Iraq and even into Pakistan in recent times. So there's a real potential for a, a conflagration here that uh, can certainly expand. See, our government in the US would say all we are doing in sending our missiles is trying to defend a strategic shipping lane. But the other side, the Houthi spokesman, sees the UK and the US as aiding and abetting the crimes of the Israelis as they see them in the Gaza Strip area now. So it's a complex situation. There's a lot going on, which I'm not going to talk about, but we've had the UN Relief and Works um, Committee accused of aiding and abetting the Hamas terrorists. UN's top court in South Africa have stated that Israel are committing genocide. We've seen Iran is behind a lot of these goings-on with Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis. And it's striking in areas of Syria and Iraq and even Pakistan and the US have hit back at various Iran-backed militias in these parts of the world, not in Iran itself, but in militias that are operated by Iran in neighboring places. And then we've talked about the strikes even including UK weaponry against uh, the people attacking shipping in the Red Sea. So a lot going on. Great potential for further development in war, sadly. So let's see how the Bible predicted a lot of what is generally going on in the Middle East. This is a 3,000-year-old prophecy. It's from a psalm. Psalm of Asaph, around about the time of David, because he introduced the service of Saul. So we're talking about 1,000 BC, and therefore 3,000 years ago, this was written in Scripture. And Psalm 83, which we'll look at a few words from it in a moment, Psalm 83 foretells a ten-member alliance of Arab territories that mostly share common borders with Israel. 
and their aim is to wipe Israel off the map. Verses 6 to 8 of Psalm 83, we'll look at them in just a moment, reveal the ancient identity of the nations in this ten-member alliance. And it includes, in modern terms, Hamas and Hezbollah. Because if we look at the bottom schematic here, in the purple colour, we've got the names mentioned in Psalm 83. People with a common border, mostly, to Israel. Gebal and Tyre, down to Philistia. So you've got Hezbollah and Hamas. Amalek, Hagrites, that's Egypt. And then you've got Midian, Edom, Moab, Ammon, the, the Jordanians, right up to Assyria there. So if we just look at that, there's the list of the ten names found in Psalm 83. I'm mentioning ten. It might strike the chord in people who know a bit about Bible prophecy. I'm sure that includes all of you here. Uh, ten nations confederate from the end time. And it could be that this is the match for that. Ten members of an alliance here, all mentioned by their ancient names. But remember, what we're doing is keeping the territory the same and giving them modern names. And so you can see how Syrians and Jordanians and so on come into the frame. Nations hostile to Israel, mostly sharing common borders with Israel, pinpointed in the Bible as being earmarked for judgment at the time of the end because of their common hatred for Israel. And this is a quote now from Psalm 83. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together. Those words are important. They conspire together. Because you could say, well, all of these people, yes, at some time they were hostile to Israel. Amalek, Exodus 17. Yeah, Assyria, 2 Kings 18. Yeah, at different times in history they were hostile. But... This psalm is about them conspiring together. That means at one point in time, they have to be conspiring with each other to be against Israel. So that looks into the future when these nations will be hostile together against Israel. And they say, let us wipe them out as a nation. And then the psalmist turns to God, Asaph turns to God and says, deal with them as with Midian. It's an interesting reference, just as an aside, because in Judges 8 and verse 26, when Gideon was fighting the Midianites, taking the spoil, among the spoil were the crescent-shaped ornaments of the kings of Midian. Think about the crescent shape today and where that occurs. Now, I want us to look at a scripture that has um, come back to me with greater emphasis recently, it's Genesis 3 and 15, sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, because God promised at the fall of humanity the Saviour was coming. But we're calling it tonight the mother of all prophecy, because really this is the, the, the seed from which all prophecy comes. And what I've noted recently is this verse is in three parts. So let's look at the three parts, Genesis 3 and 15. It's God speaking in the Garden of Eden just after the fall and he's speaking to Satan who's come as a serpent and beguiled Eve. God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve. And we know how that worked out. Very shortly, Eve's eldest son would murder his brother. 
So there's the enmity right away in her immediate family that was all produced by Satan causing that rebellion. And then there's this middle part, and between your offspring and hers. Perhaps initially we can think of the, the godly line of Seth, relatively godly at least, and the, the line of Cain and hostilities between them. But perhaps we can widen that out through time and think of true descendants of Abraham, Jews who were Jews inwardly, circumcised with the heart, over against those who were followers of Satan and followed his uh, dial in their lives. We think of a time when the Lord was here on earth and he had his little flock of disciples, so followers of the Lord. And yet he could speak to those disbelieving Jews and say, you're of your father, the devil. So there's Satan's followers and the Lord's followers. And throughout history, in different times, there's been an opposition. And if we were to look forward into the future time, in Revelation 12, we're told when Satan will be cast out of heaven. And he goes down to make war against what's termed the woman, who's Israel, and with the rest of her children. So I think we could see encompassed in this the whole of redemptive history and the conflict age long between followers of God and followers of Satan. And so Satan ultimately will make war against the woman Israel and the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of Jesus. So whether it's anti-Semitism or whether it's Christian persecution, I think it was all anticipated in the middle portion of this verse. And then finally, this brings us in the third part to the cross. He, the seed of the woman, in particular Jesus Christ, he will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. But I want to come to the book of Daniel and touch on that. In 1992, there was an interesting article written by uh, an American called Fukuyama, and he described what he termed the end of history. I think he was getting carried away because 1992 was the time just after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, or just after it, and it seemed as if democracy had won and communism was dead and the West values had triumphed. The end of history, he said. But of course, it wasn't to be. But Daniel does write about the end of history. And in chapter 12, he speaks of a time still future. And at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. Now, Daniel's people are the Jews. And Michael is Michael the archangel, the angelic prince of Israel. And so, Michael, who stands guard, will arise. And there will be a time of distress. This is going to take place after the time David will speak to us more about, the time of the rapture, when all true believers, the church, is taken out of this world. And God will begin to deal with Israel again. And that will be a time of distress, primarily for Israel, when God judges them and brings them to recognize their true Messiah. So this time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation, will occur at the time of the end. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. Not every Jew is found written in the book. Some Jews will follow the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast. But those found written in the book will be rescued. But as for you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal up the book 
until the end of time. I wanted you to particularly note these words that I've emphasized. Daniel, keep these words secret. This is belonging to the time of the end, the time of the end of world empires. And keep those words secret and seal up the book. And then he says, many will roam about and knowledge will increase. So I want to look at that last part. The book of Daniel was set to be a closed book. Seal up the book, Daniel. And then he says, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. How do you interpret that? Well, the usual interpretation is that near the end of the time of world empires, even in the times we're living, the world has shrunk to be a global village. We can jet in an aircraft across the world. Many shall run to and fro. And knowledge shall increase. Computing power doubles every two years. We're thinking of the internet's nothing to us now. And artificial intelligence is beginning to become something very much known to us. Knowledge is certainly increasing. So that's a, a very reasonable explanation of that verse. But I wonder, is it the correct interpretation? Or does it mean more than that? Because of its specific context. It comes just after Daniel has been told to seal up the words. These words are secret. Could it be that this is a reference to the gradual opening up of the prophecy that Daniel had just written down? Opened up by those who would come to be scanning Daniel's pages, perhaps even now. The running to and fro could then mean roaming backwards and forwards over Daniel's pages, searching the book, until, nearing the time of the end of world empires, the time we suggest we are living in, the book is finally unsealed and fully understandable by the believing community. I'm not being dogmatic, but it's, it's a consideration that appeals to me that in its context, this could be what that refers to. Roaming to and fro in Daniel's pages, searching for discernment, and it's the opening up of the seal of those secret words of Daniel as to what they mean. Well, he did talk about a time of future distress. Again, I want to reassure ourselves, we will not live through this time of distress. The church will be taken by our Lord Jesus before this time of distress comes upon the world, back to the timeline that we showed at the beginning. We don't believe in so-called replacement theology, which is the view held by some that the church, meaning all believers in Christ, regardless of our um, religious affiliation, the view of the replacement theology is that the church today has taken over from Israel. And the promises God made with Abraham are spiritually fulfilled in the church. Christ is the head of the church. He's sitting on the Father's throne and he's ruling through the church. But we don't believe in that. We do believe that God will revive his dealings with his ancient people. It's a literal approach to scripture. The detail that was given in the covenants in the Old Testament. Abraham, I will give this land to your descendants. God's going to honor that promise in the future. He's not broken those literal promises to Abraham and to David and so forth. But his time of dealing with Israel again. After the church goes... God will deal with Israel again. But it will begin with a time of purging and refining. A 
time of great distress. And what I'm suggesting is we can view what is happening now consistent with paving the way for that at least. Paving the way. In many places, anti-Semitic feeling is on the rise. It's the talk of the political parties in the UK right now, but across the world, in America also, anti-Semitic feeling is on the rise. Daniel himself was kept from understanding those words that we've read in Daniel chapter 12. Seal up the book, Daniel. And Daniel himself had no understanding of it. Bible students 150 years ago had no idea what Daniel was talking about. Or even 80 years ago, and even 20 years ago, we couldn't know what Daniel was talking about. 75 years ago, Israel gained her independence. 1948, the state of Israel. Israel was back on the map. And that was a key stage in the Bible's developing prophecy regarding how God will fulfill his promises to Israel. Bible students were rightly excited about that event. But in the past 20 years, have seen the emergence, or the re-emergence, of what's called the Islamic State. And although we see fluctuations in the picture, I think there's something significant in that. The Islamic government, or empire, which began in 632 AD, just after Muhammad, culminated in the Ottoman Empire, which lasted until 1924, just a hundred years ago. So a very significant progression and uh, dominion over a large part of the earth, the Islamic Caliphate. The historic Islamic Caliphate completely conquered all the lands of previous world empires, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, and the Greek Empire. And it became a successor empire to them. And it's the book of Daniel chapter 2 that tells us about those three world empires. Let's just look at it in terms of maps. So there was the Babylonian Empire. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? The Babylonian Empire stretched over this wide tract of the world. And it was succeeded by the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great and Israel being allowed to come back to rebuild their temple. And then the Medo-Persian Empire followed by the Greek Empire. We've all heard of Alexander the Great from our school days. Well, the Greek Empire under Alexander spread far and wide. So those are the three that Daniel mentions in his prophecy in chapter 2 and chapter 7. Remember, he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The king had seen a statue, and in that statue that the king saw, there were metals of decreasing value as you go down from head to toe. And only the first three were identified. Nebuchadnezzar, O king, you are the head of gold, the Babylonian Empire. And then after him was to come the Medo-Persian Empire. The Bible says that. That's hardwired. No speculation. And then that would be followed by the Greek Empire. Again, it's written in the Bible text. So we're just telling you what's in Scripture, as you know. This was God's program for world history. It's found between Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. God's program for world history. From the 6th century BC right to the time of the end of world empires. 
There would be four empires, God said. Four empires. The final, the fourth one being revived at the very time of the end. Now, here's a suggestion to consider. We mentioned earlier the finger of prophecy and said that this prophetic model that I'm sharing is the same as the prophetic model of finger of prophecy, but there was one point of speculation in the finger of prophecy, and I am daring to offer you an alternative speculation for your consideration, and we can have Q&A about it later. And instead of the Roman Empire being the successor empire to the Babylonian, Medo-Persian, and the Greek Empire, we could consider the Islamic Empire, or Caliphate, as being the fourth empire seen in Nebuchadnezzar's statue and interpreted by Daniel, but he didn't specify what it was, so it's open for us to figure out. The words are becoming unsealed as knowledge to and fro as we search the book and we open our Bible and we see what's happening in the world and relate to what's happening and interpret it with the help of Scripture. So, can we today know the previously unknowable? That's a tantalizing question, is it not? This is what Daniel was given by way of interpretation, and he shared it with the king. While you were watching, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, a stone was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue that we've described that he saw on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken in pieces, or broken to pieces, at the same time, and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer, and the winds swept them away without leaving a trace. Now, how could it be that all those empires, that one succeeded the other down through history, how could they all collapse at the same time? In my reading, fairly recently, I was going through Ezra again, and in chapter 6 and verse 22, Ezra and the people of the remnant who had returned give thanks to God that he had moved the heart of the king of Assyria to allow them to come back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. I'm thinking, but it wasn't the king of Assyria. It was Darius, the Medo-Persian king. And that's factual. But he's described as being the king of Assyria. It was an honorific title because the Medo-Persian empire had occupied the territory previously reigned over by the king of Assyria. So if you like, Darius, the king of Persia, was the king of Assyria because he dominated the land that once had been ruled by the king of Assyria. And so I would understand, it may not be the only way to understand this, and you can share different ideas, but I would understand the four empires being demolished at one time when Jesus comes back to the earth to set up his kingdom, I would see that as meaning that all of these empires ruled over the same territory, approximately. And so each empire was a successor to the previous one. And its leader or ruler could use the title of the previous ones. And when Christ destroys the final form of the fourth empire, they're all gone. All that piece of territory is taken over. Now, if the Roman Empire was revived and then destroyed, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, 
could not be said to be all destroyed at the same time because roughly two-thirds of the territories covered by these empires would be left untouched. So I remember Jack Ferguson, who was one of the authors of Finger of Prophecy, saying, there's always room for two views in prophecy. Therefore, don't dogmatize in relation to your brothers. So he's given me the opportunity, I think, and the license to share an alternative view from his view, which would have been the revived Roman Empire and the final world power being a mid-European world power. But I'm wondering, and I'm suggesting to you for your consideration, that it could be a mid-Eastern world power. It could be an Islamic empire. Because Islam is now the fastest growing religion in the world. And it's spreading and taking over large pieces of the world. And it would occupy the same area as those previous ones. Well, there will be a, a fourth empire, Daniel said. And it will be strong as iron. And it will crush everything. Just as iron crushes, it will smash and crush all things. And in that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have within it the toughness of the iron, since you saw iron mixed with common clay. And so there will be a brittleness, a fragility there. So just look at these descriptors. Strong, crushing, divided, mixed. So the fourth kingdom, I believe, will be centred on Babylon. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And ranging through scripture, I think you could describe the Bible as the tale of two cities. There's going to be our theme for the study day in the Northwest on the 2nd of March. No, it's not that one. <laughs> I'm going ahead. It's the one later in the year we'll be studying the city of Zion. That's God's city. But alongside that in scripture is the city of Babylon. That's the world's city. And it's representing the world in rebellion against God. So Babylon runs through from Genesis, chapter, chapter 10. The Tower of Babel in the next chapter is the Tower of Babylon. Rebellion against God, it goes right through to Revelation 17 and 18. So I think Babylon is, is something that is in Scripture and epitomizes throughout rebellion against God. The fourth kingdom will be very strong. It will be different from others. It will be a crushing brutality. It will be divided. It will be composed of a mixture. It will finally be in a ten-state confederacy. Compare Psalm 83, possibly. It will be headed by a notable blasphemous leader, the Antichrist, the Assyrian. And it will be destroyed along with its predecessors, we are told, in some sense. And I'm saying compare the wording in Ezra 6 and 22. Now, finally, is this then the fourth empire? We know these ones, Babylonian, head of gold, Medo-Persian, the chest area of silver, the Greek Empire, the thighs of bronze. What about the legs of iron and latterly of clay? Revived Roman Empire or revived Islamic Caliphate? The vision actually defines the Islamic Caliphate from Muhammad's time into 15% Shia and 85% Sunni. The big debate was over who was Muhammad's true successor. Was it one of his relatives or one of his companions? So it's a divided empire. Muhammad believed he could unite the Arabian peoples. But scripture was against him in that. 
and it's a mixture and remains a mixture to this day. Now, the Islamic Caliphate ruled for 1300 years and was ended by the Turkish reformer Ataturk in 1924. So, something for your consideration and you can come back if you wish with questions afterwards about that. Thanks for listening.